We've been in a series called You Asked For It. You Asked For It. Uh, what I've appreciated about this kind of a series is the uh, ability to take your questions that you're wrestling with and say, yeah, we're all wrestling with some questions about God or about our faith or about whatever, and to say, let's dive in and let's take a look at some of your questions and explore what God's Word says. Remember that when we have questions about God or faith, our uh, source of hope and instruction is the Bible. I mean, there might be other ways that you think you could answer questions, but I think for us as followers of Jesus, we go to the Bible and we say, God, show us what your word says about these things. So we've talked about end-of-life issues. We talked about cremation, suicide. Uh, we've talked about homosexuality and sexual sin. Uh, we've talked about questions about the Bible and things that don't seem to make sense in the Bible. We've talked about questions about God, about forgiveness. I mean, we've kind of explored a lot of your deep questions. And today, we're going to tackle what kind of often becomes one of the number one questions leveraged against the Christian faith. And that is, you know, if God exists, then why is there suffering in our world today? If truly he's a good God, then why does he allow sickness and suffering? And so this is the question we're going to unpack today. And I want to do this with, with just a general sense of caution, because all of us have experience in some form with, with illness, sickness, with disease. Maybe you have a loved one who's currently suffering. Maybe you're currently suffering and you're wondering why. You love God, but why is he allowing this to happen to you? And so as we, as we explore this topic, I recognize this is a reality that we all have bumped into at some point in time. But I want us to go to the, to, to the Word of God and figure out why. Why God, if he loves, would allow sickness to happen? Because this is what makes this question so tricky. If God is good, then why does he allow bad things like illness or disease to happen? And so to answer this question, we kind of have to go back and say, well, what was the cause or what was the origin of sickness and suffering in our world today? And so let's just kind of briefly review some history. We know that when the Bible opens in Genesis chapter 1, that God creates uh, the heavens and the earth and God creates perfection. Everything that he made was made perfect and was made complete, including man. When God made man, man was perfect and man had unbroken relationship with God. And by the way, man actually had life eternal. There was a tree in the garden called the tree of life and he could eat from that whenever. But there was a sense that there was, a, there was no death created into creation, Okay? God just created and there was beauty and there was harmony and there was close intimacy with God in the beauty of the Garden of Eden. But when he made man, we also know that God made man with one mechanism internally that could mess it all up. And it was called a free will. And a lot of folks say, why did God do that? Why did God give Adam and Eve the ability to disobey him? Why would he create a world and then leave its potential into the hands of a person who can exercise their free will to mess the whole thing up? And that's a great question. But the answer to that question is, why would God create somebody that he wants to have relationship with if that person or people could not choose him? If we're programmed to love God, is that love? If your spouse is programmed to love you, is that love? No, that's just simply programming. That's just duty. So God makes within the heart of man an 
aspect of his image, which is a free will to choose. That we might choose to love God. But with that free will, there comes the other side of it. And that is the will to do evil, the will to disobey and disregard God and his commands. And what we saw happen early in the creation story, we go to Genesis chapter 3, and we see the serpent, the enemy of our souls, in the garden tempting Eve to sin. And God had warned man that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was going to happen? God said these words, you will surely die. That's what it says in the Bible. You will surely die. So that fateful day comes where the serpent deceives Eve and she eats the fruit and hands it to Adam and he also eats fully aware of what he is doing. And after they ate the fruit, what happened? They didn't die in the way that we think you would die. Something happened, though, in their human body, and that was that sin, which brings death, became part of the reality of the human race. So they didn't die in the sense they ate the fruit and it was poisonous, and boom, they knocked over dead, and God's got to start again. No, what happened was spiritual death because of sin. And that sin had consequences that were universal. In fact, we can see in the early account, in fact, we're going to go to this question that was asked that kind of sets the stage for this whole topic. And the question was this, is the disease in my body the devil's work? It can't be our Lord's work. I'm his child and he wouldn't give this to me. Okay, so maybe this is the question that you're wrestling with that brings us to this point to see what is the cause Is it the Lord's work? Is it the devil's work? Is it something else? What is going on? And so in Genesis chapter 3, shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, when they chose to disobey God, we see God dispense the consequence of sin. I mean, it's already happened in them, but now he's just speaking to it. And he says this in Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Those words were never used in the creation account up to this point. The only thing we know is that God formed man from the ground, right? That God crafted Adam and he breathed into him the breath of life. But now we see the other aspect. He was made to be eternal, But now we see what happens because of sin. For since it you were taken, and for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so with the dispensement of the curse of sin, there came illness and death. How else could people die unless our bodies became corrupted? Unless the perfection of God's creation became corrupted? So brokenness, corruption of the perfect creation, which means our bodies, death, all of these are the universal consequences of sin. In fact, we can see Paul speak about that in Romans 5, because some of the things that also people argue is, okay, I get it, Adam and Eve blew it, but why should that be my issue? Why should that be my problem? I didn't make those choices. How come I have to suffer because somebody up the, the tree, <laughs> the family tree made a bad decision? Well, Romans 5, Paul addresses that question. 5.12, he says, Therefore, 
Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So we have what's called the federal headship of Adam that reigns in our world, and he was the representation of humankind, and he did what every human heart now does by our nature, turns away from God. And so death is the ultimate reminder that we have inherited the sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that lives now in all of humankind, and we see it every day. And the good news, though, is that God will set things right. That this is temporal. What's happening here now in this fallen world is temporary. In fact, Revelation addresses what's going to happen with the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll talk more about that later. But there will come a time when God will set things right. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new creation. And in this place called heaven, there's perfection. There's no sorrow. There's no sickness. There's no sin. There's no suffering. But until that time, we are going to live within and be impacted by the consequences of sin, a body that's infected and and impacted by sin. And so we're going to have chronic pain, illness, disease, sickness. We're going to experience those things because of the brokenness of our world and our bodies. So disease, sickness, and suffering are a result of man's rebellion against God. And because of that, it is passed down for generation, generation, generation. And here's the problem that we deal with, it is indiscriminate. It's no respecter of persons. Our broken bodies are, are broken, and we will suffer harm quite possibly for no real good reason except that we live in a broken world. And so in that sense, it, it doesn't pick and choose. It falls upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Great people that loved God deeply that I have known have died of a disease or an illness. And so we look at this and go, but this doesn't make it right. But it is the world in which we live. And fortunately, this is not the only window we have. That we have an eternity where God will make things right. But back to the question that was originally asked. Then, then can some sickness be the devil's work? Well, the Bible addresses that. And according to the Bible, there does appear to be some sicknesses that have been attributed to Satan. Let me give you an example. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, went about healing people. And in one of these occasions, it was a Sabbath day. It was a time that was very holy and religious for the religious leaders where you were to do no work. But Jesus healed this woman on the Sabbath day who the illness that she had caused her to not be able to stand, to straighten herself. She was hunched over. And when Jesus had healed, he had faced some critics, of course, for healing on the Sabbath. And look what he said. Luke 13, 16, then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So he seems to link the illness or disease that she had with indeed the work of Satan. In fact, in Acts 10, 38, Peter is speaking about Jesus, and he says this, who went up, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So there seemed to be, among his ministry of healing, dealing with the satanic, dealing with illnesses that seemed to have its origin from the work of the, of the enemy. But don't make the mistake, though, then, of saying that every illness is a result of the devil's work. 
Because in the same Bible that shows us examples of some of this illness being from a demonic source, we also see illness that came from or through the hand of God. Let me tell you a story. Maybe you remember this guy. His name's Job. If you've not yet read Job, I encourage you to read it as much as you can in one setting. I know it's a long book, but try to read it because this is the most intriguing story of human suffering, yet God's allowance of it in a man. Now, let me remind you, Job was holy before God. In fact, when uh, all the angels assembled, including Satan, assembled before God, he kind of calls out Job and says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, why would he do that? Because Job was an evil man? No, because there was a holiness and a righteousness to Job that God said, look, this guy is here. And Satan basically says, well, the only reason he's here, God, is because of your blessing. But if you strike him, certainly he will curse you. And so God allows in his what's called permissive will, he allows Job to be tested by the enemy. His body is impacted. His social world is impacted as he loses his family. He suffers physically in his body. And you read the story and you see a man who doesn't understand why this is happening to him. But he has friends who are counseling him saying, well, it must be because of sin in your life. So you need to confess your sin to God and maybe he will restore you. And this whole story is happening because God allows it and it's basically to test the faithfulness of Job. Now, let me remind you, not many of us can hold to that statute. But I believe there are times that God may allow an illness as a refining moment for his followers. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But we also see illness that is allowed or even caused by God to deal with the wicked. There was a king, his name was Jehoram, and he was king of Judah. This means, you know, back in the Old Testament. And this king was very wicked. He instituted, uh, continued to institute idolatry. He was a very wicked king. And so God inflicts him with an illness to his intestines. And the Bible says that basically what happened for him is his intestines came out. He was in horrific suffering. And the whole point was because of the wickedness of this king. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, lest you think it's just an Old Testament thing. There was a king named Herod, not the Herod who was the same that slaughtered the innocents that we see in the birth of Jesus narratives. This is actually his son, and his name is Herod Agrippa. And in Acts 12, we see the wickedness of Herod who will not bring glory to God, and he gets uh, infected with worms that eat him from within. An illness sent by God as judgment upon the wicked. So we see, yeah, it can be the devil's work. Sometimes it can be the work of God or an allowance of God, even upon the righteous. But then we also see this issue of sin and wickedness in the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 14, we love the story where John, or where, where John shows us Jesus is healing this man who was paralyzed. Since his childhood, he was a paralyzed man, and Jesus heals him. But he connects again with the paralyzed man. And look at what he says in John 5.14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and he said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Well, there seems to be this sense where 
Because of sin or because of wickedness, there is a physical illness that can oftentimes be a part of that. But there was also a time when the disciples attribute an illness or a disease to sin, and Jesus didn't let them. So it's like, boy, the Bible's kind of got a lot of layers. Yes, it does. And he says this, in fact, in John 9, it's the story of the man who was born blind. And in John 9, it goes like this, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So a good question. They believed that oftentimes in, in their era, if there was sickness, it was because of sin. So the parents must have done something wrong or he must have done something wrong. And what does Jesus say? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, this isn't an example that they were sinless, okay? Because like all people, they have a propensity towards sin. The point was this illness is not due to their sin. But he explains it. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So even as his children, there are illnesses that God permits. Why does he permit it? Let's look at it. He permits it to keep us humble and dependent upon God. There was this part, we'll look at it later, where Paul was given what's called a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. It could have been his own issue with eyesight. It could have been a physical illness he wrestled with continually. But it was given him to humble him which means to keep him dependent on God. But there were also times that that we've seen uh, through the ministry of Jesus an illness that was used to bring glory to Jesus through healing. And so when we ask, well, what is the cause of of suffering or sickness in our world? Sin is the, the reason why it happens. But there are things that happen through illness. Sometimes it's an act of God, it's an act of the enemy, and sometimes it's just the consequence of life, but it moves us closer to God. But please understand this, God's allowance of sickness or suffering in your life does not invalidate his love, his power, or his compassion. We want to think God is all loving, loving people wouldn't do this to me. So we begin to judge God based on what's going on in our broken bodies. And friends, that's just not a good place to be. God has defined himself outside of man's experience, that he is loving, that he is compassionate, that he is a comforter, that he is all-powerful, that he actually is your healer as well. He has defined who he is. We don't try to define him through our illnesses or through our circumstances. He is God. But here's what God can do. God can and he will demonstrate his love, his grace, his compassion through your illness. There's a large passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul talks about why we at times suffer and what comes out of that suffering. And listen to what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 11, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you 
is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And let's listen to what he says. This is, we, we get a little window into Paul's experience with suffering. He goes on to say this, we do not want you to become uninformed brothers or sisters about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. You ever been there? Something going on that you just can't seem to endure. He goes on, so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. So on him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. So Paul's been there. He's felt that. He discovered something through that, that God's comfort is real. From those who've experienced suffering, they can also share the comfort that they've experienced from God. So we'll never fully understand why God chooses to act in ways that seem contrary to his character. God, you're loving, but this doesn't feel loving. And so at times there's this mystery, this tension that we have to deal with. So what do we do with it? I believe the Bible actually gives us some to-dos when it comes to when we find ourselves in a place of suffering or sickness or illness or walking with somebody through a lingering illness. And here's a few we can find from Scripture. One, that suffering produces intimacy with God. If we allow it, suffering can produce intimacy with God. Why? Because there's a sense of depending on Him, right? Job touches on this. And in Job 42, verse 5, and maybe this is what you need to experience today. Job says that my ears had heard of you. In other words, God, I, I knew about you, okay? But through his, so this is the end of Job. This is toward the end of it all, right? Let's look, look at what he says. But now my eyes have seen you. Now, did he really see God? No, he, he didn't see him. But he saw him in the midst of what he was going through. And friends, there are times that you will not know God except in the midst of suffering. And you will see him like you have never seen him before. You might have known about him, but now through the hardship of suffering, you see him. And that is that sense of intimacy, that you know God is there and he is for you. So intimacy with God is nurtured right in the midst of suffering. Not when it's over and say, well, gee, thank you, God, for taking that away. Let's be best buddies now. No, it's often right in the midst of that that you begin to see God like never before. In fact, Dr. Tim Hager put it this way. There's an opening of the soul that happens during times of stress or duress. And during these times of suffering, we experience God at a deep, profound level. And that's only going to happen if we don't push against him. The problem is the human nature wants to say, God, this does not equate with your goodness. This can't be you, and we want to push away from him. Rather than lean toward him and say, God, I don't understand why I have this suffering. Maybe it's just because I live in a broken world. But I'm going to lean toward you and discover the fullness of who you are like I've never done before. Suffering also, number two, equips us to comfort others that we already just read about in 1 Corinthians. Suffering, or actually 2 Corinthians, suffering gives us compassion for others who are hurting. 
enabling us to minister more effectively. In his book that was called Sovereignty, Suffering, and the Work of Missions, Stephen Saint says these words, sufferers want to be ministered to by people who have suffered. John Piper in his book called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God writes this, people who suffer want people who have suffered to tell them there is hope. They are justifiably suspicious of people who appear to have lived lives of ease. So when you're going through something that only you go through, it's good to know somebody else, maybe who's gone through it, can be with you and bring you comfort and hope. Maybe, just maybe, what you're experiencing now becomes a vehicle to bring comfort to somebody else, and God wants to use you for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll remind you of it, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God does something in you in the midst of your suffering that now God wants to do through you to somebody else who is suffering. And you're just glad it's over maybe because it was a past tense event for you. Recognize that now God perhaps is mobilizing you to step into a ministry that will bring comfort to others who have experienced similar things to you. Don't just wipe your brow and say, man, I'm glad that is over. Look at the purpose, how God wants to use that, that you might walk somebody else through the valley of the shadow of doubt to begin to discover that God does care about them and there is hope. Number three, suffering refines us. It refines us. There are things that suffering does that brings things to our attention. The prophet Isaiah speaks of it this way about the Lord, Isaiah 48, 10. I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Friends, there are times when God just turns the heat up, and it doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's an illness, maybe it's a disease, maybe it's a lingering issue that is mental that you're dealing with in your mind or in depression, and there's this thing that all of a sudden happens, and you're like, what is going on here? But what happens as that furnace gets turned up, your weaknesses certainly come to the surface. But so do your strengths. I have seen great strength in people in the midst of suffering that has brought out of them. I've also seen weakness. And what happens is that that furnace gets turned up through suffering, and then God begins to deal with the dross that comes to the surface. And he says, let's just deal with this attitude of the heart. Let's deal with this dependency you've had on yourself or on others. Let's deal with these things. And God does that, why? Because it's a process of making us to be his image bearers. He refines us because he cares. And how many know that sometimes the only way God can really get your attention on some issues is through suffering? And so he does it. Can I tell you, Job was refined even in the midst of his own suffering as well. It happened. He was already, I mean... God's like, hey, consider Job, but he was already in a pretty good place, but he was refined even through the, his own suffering. And so it brings us into that place of, of refining and purifying us. Number four, suffering produces growth and maturity. It actually works in you for your good. 
Growth and maturity. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work in you, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials come, and in the midst of those, we have a choice to press through with the help and grace of God to persevere. And when we choose that route, then God develops something in us, maturity. Maybe the suffering you're experiencing right now is God's mechanism to grow you and to mature you so that you'll be complete, lacking nothing. Friends, sign me up for that. And here's what I know to be true. If I pray that I want to become more mature, that I want to lack nothing, that becomes a dangerous prayer. Because that means then there's something that's going to happen, either in my circumstance or around my circumstance, that will begin to create that process of maturing. He's not just, great, you want to mature? Here you go. Here's some maturity. No, it is fashioned in the midst of suffering and trials. Are they good prayers? You bet. Great prayers to pray. Just be ready for what that means as he wants to mature you. Also, number five, suffering conforms us into God's image. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Again, let's not make the mistake of saying everything's going to be good. This is where we get wrong. Only good things are supposed to come from the hand of God. Friends, if somebody has sold you that bill of goods, I'm sorry. Because Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Right? So, yeah, things are going to happen that are bad, that are suffering, that are illness. But all of these things, God says he will work together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Why? For those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants to bring you into conformity with him. And sometimes, again, the way that happens is through the hard school of suffering and hardship. So remember, even in the midst of your own self, remember, remember this about God. We serve a Savior who is familiar with our suffering. He wasn't like just watching from heaven with his arms crossed going, yeah, that's got to be pretty hard, I could imagine. That was a bad choice Adam made when he you know, sinned, and now there's sickness, I'm sorry. No, what you have to remember about God is he inserted himself into the world of suffering. The prophet Isaiah spoke about Jesus as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with our suffering and with our grief. In fact, he was despised and he was rejected and it was by his stripes what that we are healed. And so Jesus suffered immensely. He's not somebody who's not familiar with the things that we go through. In fact, again in Hebrews Chapter 5, verse 7 and 10. Not on the screen for you, but listen to the words. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Even Jesus, in his suffering, proved obedience. Friends, he learned that. He understands it. He knows it. And he's certainly with us in the midst of it. That reminds us back of 2 Corinthians 12, 
Verse 8, Paul wrestling with his thorn in the flesh. He doesn't know why he's got this thing. He ple- it says that I, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And maybe you've done it more than three times. Maybe you've pleaded year after year, God, take this illness or the sickness away from me or from my loved one. Three times he pleaded, but he said to me, this is what he felt the voice of the Lord say, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so Christ's power may rest on me. Paul captured an important idea. That in the midst of my weakness, in my illness, in my brokenness, Christ's power is made perfect there. And his grace, which means his ability in my inability. You might not feel like you can make it any further, but his ability in your ability is, in your inability is enough. His grace is sufficient for you. So why do we deal with illness in our bodies? It's part of the fallen creation. Anytime that you are ill or feel that, I, I think it's wise to pray. Say, God, I, I want to be submissive in this, in this season of my life. Help me know if there's something you want to do in me. I want to partner with you. I certainly would say pray for healing. I believe that's something else God can do through. I've seen people that we've prayed for and God has healed them for his glory. And others we've prayed for and labored for in prayer and God chose not to heal them. I don't know why, but in his sovereignty, he does what is best, working all things together for our good. Now, another question kind of similar to the first goes like this. When, when someone you love is suffering a terminal illness, how do we pray? Or do we pray that death comes so that they will be with the Lord? Or do we continue to pray for healing? What should we ask the Lord for and how do we pray in those circumstances? Maybe you've been there. Somebody you love has been given a bad diagnosis, and you're like, okay, how do we pray about this? What do we do? Because, you know, heaven's a good place, but we kind of like them being here. So how do we deal with this tension? You know, Paul dealt with this tension. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, he expresses a bit of that. Paul himself knew that his days were probably numbered. He had already faced incredible hardship, suffering, things that he experienced in life. But he said these words, Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So while I'm here, I know God's got a plan, and I'm going to keep stepping into it. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But he goes on to say how also being here is fruitful for them. And he understands that tension. So Lord, how do I step into an environment where someone I love is given this very terrible diagnosis? How do I pray? And the Bible doesn't give you specific answers for, okay, loved one has cancer, so here's how you should pray. But here's just some some common sense when it comes to these matters. I think first and foremost, the question should be, what is their spiritual condition? What is their spiritual condition? Because you got to start there. So if your loved one is far from God and they have this terrible, incurable disease they've been given, and now how do I pray? I'm praying for their salvation. I'm praying that they would come to know God. I'm praying for me that God would use me as, a, as, as an evangelist of hope for my loved one. So I got to start there. God, help me to express your message of hope to those that are far from you. 
But then secondly, let's say they are a follower of Jesus. Then, then how do I do this? Well, imagine with me that if your loved one just discovered a diagnosis of cancer and it was terminal, would you want to pray that death comes quickly to them? Is that what they want to hear you pray? I don't think so. Even a fairly coherent loved one who is maybe on hospice and this is a path they're maybe moving toward, I don't know that we want to pray that Lord would hasten their death. You might feel, Lord, come on, help us out. I mean, I've been there before at the bedside of somebody who was lingering. It's like, Lord, just take them, please. In your mercy, take them. There are times when it's appropriate to release your loved one. Say, you know what, I, I, we, we, we know the Lord is, is near and we release you. There, that, that's okay. But I think when we begin to see that it's inevitable that they're moving toward death, we begin to pray for comfort. We pray for God's ministry right here in these moments. We use scripture that we can read from Psalms and other places in the New Testament about the hope we have in Christ Jesus beyond this life. But on the front end, I say we pray for healing. I mean, Lord might do something dramatic and and remarkable through this loved one's diagnosis and God heals them. So here's what I know. God is smarter than I am. And as his child, I can ask him for things. My kids ask me for a lot of things. I don't give them everything they ask for. So if someone's been given a terrible diagnosis, I'm going to pray for God's healing. Absolutely. I'm going to trust him that, God, you're going to do what you, need, you, what you can do through this. But I'm also going to recognize he ultimately knows what's best. And so then we're going to pray God's sovereign will be accomplished. Another question that's similar to that that has more of an internal consequence is the last question I want to really hit today, and it's this. I'm still curious, if there is no suffering or sorrow in heaven, how will we feel if one of our loved ones doesn't make it to heaven? Maybe you've wrestled with that question concerning the death of a loved one already who you weren't sure they had been in right relationship with God prior to their death, and you're wondering. And this question has to do with when I'm in heaven, will I think about my family that maybe hadn't made that decision? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a definitive answer to what we're going to experience concerning the thoughts of our loved ones who didn't make that decision to follow Jesus. It doesn't tell us that. But I believe that, I guess I have a feeling, call it that, I have a feeling that we're going to be so overwhelmed with being in the unhindered, unfiltered, absolute presence of God that that's where my focus is going to be, is on Him. I may not even be giving a thought at that point to anything but Him. And I can also do this. I can trust God. You are just. And you are faithful. And whatever decision has been made, it's been made in your justice. And I'm just going to have to trust you with that. I don't think we're going to have played over in our minds before the Lord our loved ones who have not made it to heaven. There's a verse that kind of speaks to this, Revelation chapter 21. I mean, a lot of Revelation has been some very horrific events happening at the end of the world and stuff going on, but toward the end it begins to speak about the new heaven and the new earth. And listen to what it says, Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There seems as though, and I don't know what that's going to look like because this leaves a lot of interpretation. And so we have to just kind of understand that I have a sense that the old order is we are self-absorbed and we're concerned about other things. The new order is he is our center of focus. And I don't know what that means for as we think about other people, but I have a sense he's going to be our all in all. But what does that mean for now? If this is a lingering question you have, then that should become for you motivation now while there is still time to be a messenger of hope to your loved ones who aren't in that relationship with Christ. So Lord willing, you should never have to think about this kind of a question in eternity. And I know you can't make people be saved. I get it. You got loved ones who are skeptic, who are hard-hearted, who have been deceived by the lie of the enemy. I know it's hard. But friends, our challenge ought to be, I am now a missionary of God to my family. And you know what? He's going to be faithful to use you to do that. You're going, but Kelly, you don't know my loved one. You're right, I don't. But I think their creator does. And God works in ways that you can never imagine in the hearts of your loved ones. Where we hear stories of absolute atheist skeptics coming to know God in a very profound way through oftentimes very simple things. And friends, I'm pretty simple. We're all pretty simple. And God might just use a word in time to help our family come to know Him. So as we close this message today, there's a couple of ways I want us to respond. First, I'd like us all just to stand this morning right where you are, just to stand. There's two responses I, want, I feel the Lord really prompting my heart for us to, to make with this message. And the first one is this, that has to do with suffering. Maybe you're here today and you have been suffering, an illness, chronic pain, disease, and you're going to commit to just trust God today with it, that He is going to work in it and through it for His glory. Or maybe you want to stand in the place for somebody that you love that is wrestling with this illness and suffering. And you're going to stand as one who will say, God, I'll be a messenger of comfort to my loved one. And the second response would be, you want to stand in the place of your unsaved loved ones today. That God might use you as a messenger of hope to them. That they would find their Savior in Christ Jesus and spend eternity in heaven that God has prepared for those who love Him. So I'm going to challenge you to do something maybe a little out of your comfort zone, but if you want to respond to either one of those two, you're going to step in for your own suffering or, the fre- or a suffering of a loved one or salvation for a loved one. I want you just to move right here toward the front of the auditorium and stand right here. I'd like to pray with you. Because there's something that happens when we step into a posture of coming to the altar. The Bible often talks about altars that were built to commemorate a moment, but this is going to be you as a living altar before God, saying, God, I'm stepping into this place for me, for my loved one, or whatever it might be for you, and I'm going to step into this place, and I'm going to commit to you. 
to trust you in the midst of it, then you will use me for your purpose in the midst of this, if it's to be a messenger of salvation or of comfort. Let's pray. Lord, right now you see those who are standing here. And they're standing as a demonstration of their commitment to you. And God, I know it honors you when we do this, when we put our trust and our hope in you. And I thank you for each person standing here that is doing that, that's committing whatever this might be. Maybe it's their own illness or the illness of a loved one. And they're committing that, Lord, no matter how this plays out, they trust you. So God, right now in the midst of this, I just pray for those among us right now that are suffering, that God, I pray for your healing. You have promised that that is part of your atonement. That Jesus, it was by your stripes that we, Peter said, have been healed. And God, so this illness is that your glory might be demonstrated as your, as your power is made manifest in their body and you bring healing, then God, we pray to that end, that Lord, you would touch them for that purpose. And I pray they would be the one who would share the answer to this prayer with as many people as they can as a testimony of your power at work in our suffering. But God, I pray for others' perseverance. As they are praying for healing, but Lord, they don't see it coming, I pray they would persevere because you are doing a work in them that is far greater than perhaps their healing. And I pray for them. God, I pray for those that are standing in the gap for a loved one that they would now be messengers of comfort and hope to them. Lord, give them the words to say. Oftentimes, we don't know what to say to those that are suffering. But Lord, would you give us the right words? Would you bring our mind to a portion of your scripture that can bring comfort to them, to comfort our afflicted and those that are suffering that we love so dearly? And God, I pray also for those that are standing in the place today of their loved ones that need to know you. Lord, we've experienced your salvation that is so rich and so liberating, but Lord, we have people that have not. So God, I pray you would commission them from this place. Lord, I know that often we wrestle with, well, how do we do this? What do we say? God, I thank you that you've promised that you will give us the words to say in time, much like you told your disciples, not to worry about what you're going to say ahead of time, but that you'll be faithful to give the words in season. So God, I pray that as they interact with their loved ones, that Lord, you would just do the work only you can do in their lives. But also, I'm so glad, God, that you're working already in the lives of our loved ones. Holy Spirit, you have promised that you'll be the convictor of sin, that you will bring people, that you will draw people to the Father. And so, God, I pray for divine appointment when you're working on behalf of our loved one and our heart, that, God, we'd be obedient to act in those moments, that we might see your salvation. So, God, we pray for that. Give us a boldness like never before, a boldness to care about our loved ones enough that we will go into that conversation they've been avoiding because we know you're at work. So thank you, Lord. Whatever this need might be today, we just trust you and we commit ourselves to your purpose today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.